What would you say if you were asked to distinguish Christianity from the other religions of the world? You may think of many ways in which the Christian faith differs from that of other religions. But one of these differences that underscore the uniqueness of the Christian faith was brought to the fore by Erin Lutzer, who then was pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. And Lutzer talks about uh, an international congress of religion in Chicago years ago, where all the major religions were lined up with their stalls, with their literature, advocating for their particular religious position. You had, the, you had Islam, the Baha'i faith, Judaism, they were all there. Hinduism, Buddhism. And Lutzer tells how he begins to interview those who were there at this Congress, representing their religion. And he went from stall to stall, and he asked them one question. Does your religion have a savior? Does your religion have a savior? And he went to stall after stall. And they said, we had We have great prophets, and they listed them, but we have no savior. Stall after stall, he asked the same question and received the same response. We have great prophets, but we have no savior. One of the distinguishing marks of the Christian faith is that we have both a prophet and a savior. In fact, we have a prophet who is also prophet, priest, and king. What we have in Christianity is a savior who actually does something, who saves. But salvation can only be found in the Christian faith and in particular in Jesus Christ. The passage that we read in Colossians chapter 1 brings this to the fore. The writer Paul, as he begins to address the Colossians, after his introduction, gives them a summary of his prayer for them. A prayer in which he gives thanks to God for them. And prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of of God's will, so that they might walk worthily of the Lord, that is, walk in a manner that is pleasing to him. And the writer, in verse 10, explains what walking worthy of the Lord involves. And in fact, he will go on to list, using four participles, how one walks worthy of the Lord and please him. He says, being fruitful in every good work. In verses 10 and 12. 
increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He's praying that they may walk worthy of the Lord, and they should do so by bearing fruit, by increasing in their knowledge of God, by being strengthened with might in the inward man, and that they might be walking worthily of the Lord that is pleasing him by giving thanks. And one of the reasons he says that they should be giving thanks is because he has qualified us, he says, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. He has given us an everlasting inheritance. He's dealing with the subject of salvation. And in verses 13 and 14, we have what, we, what is before us, a summary of salvation. For the writer in verses 13 and 14 continues to say, he has delivered us, this Christ, this, this God who has made us partakers or made us partakers in the inheritance of life. He says he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. These verses lay before us a summary of this unique salvation that we have in God. I want to suggest that when we think of salvation, at least in these two, in these two verses, we are to look at three essential components of this salvation that we have. First, salvation, according to the Apostle Paul, entails a decisive rescue from the power of darkness. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. Paul casts, views salvation as a rescue. And whenever we use the language of rescue, we do imply that there is danger. You cannot have a rescue unless there is danger. But not only does rescue implies danger, it implies impotence. The only reason that you need to be rescued is because you can't rescue yourself. If, you're, if you don't know how to swim and you go to the swimming pool, jump off in the deep end of the pool, and you begin to drown, taking in a gallon of water, and you can't swim, somebody has to jump in and deliver you. The reason they do so is because you can't help yourself. You can't rescue somebody who is able to help themselves. That's not a rescue. You may help them, but you can't rescue. You can't deliver them. And here the writer says, he has delivered us. He has rescued us from the power of darkness. He's referring then to a deliverance. Now, this language of rescue points to God's definitive act. This is divine initiative. Notice the writer says he has Delivered us. He's referring to the Father, to God. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. This is God's work. Secondly, this deliverance, this rescue, must be perceived in terms of a new exodus. The language that is used here, at least the verb, ruamai, that is used by the Apostle Paul, crops up in the Old Testament in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew, 
at Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. There we read, The Lord, therefore say to the children of Israel, The Lord is speaking to Moses, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptian. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. The context, of course, if you recall, was after Moses had met with Pharaoh and said to him, God, the God of Israel, the God of our fathers, have commanded you to release his people from slavery. And Pharaoh had rejected God's command. And now the Lord reassures Moses that he was going to rescue them from their bondage and that he was going to redeem them. Now I want you to understand that here in Exodus 6, verse 6, you have two terms. You have the term rescue and you have the term redeem. And these two terms crop up in our passage in verses 12 and 13 of Colossians 1. Where in verses 13 and 14 we read, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption. You have rescue and you have redemption. The Lord says He would redeem them. He would rescue them from their bondage and he would redeem them with an outstretched arm in Exodus 6. And so what the Lord then is promising in Exodus 6 is a rescue and a redemption. And in the writer, the writer Paul in Colossians says that the Lord has rescued them. In verse 14, that they have received a redemption. And so what what he does is that he's using the language then of Exodus 6 verse 6 to suggest that the work of God of salvation must be perceived as a new exodus. Just like the Lord led Israel out of Egypt, so the Lord will lead them out or has led them out from under the power of darkness. Now, whereas Israel's deliverance was a deliverance from Political bondage, the rescue that Paul speaks of in verse 13 is a greater rescue because it is a rescue from spiritual bondage. You see this term rescue, ruamai, used by the Lord Jesus, for instance, when he, in fact, in the Lord's Prayer says, we are to pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. It's the same word, rescue, but rescue us from evil. And the Apostle Paul uses a term here. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. Salvation is cast as a rescue. But he says he has delivered us from the power of darkness. What does that refer to? What does that mean? A clue to understanding what the phrase power of darkness means is found in the story of our Lord Jesus Christ's arrest in the garden. We find in Luke 22, verse 53, when the soldiers of the high priest came to the Lord Jesus, at that time he said, when I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour. And the power of darkness. What does the power of darkness refer to? Well, in a word, 
it refers to Satan and his minions. It refers to satanic influence and rule. He has rescued us from the power of darkness, from the clutches of the devil. Paul uses language similar in Ephesians chapter 2 when he describes us in our unregenerate state. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And he goes on to say, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. He describes Satan not only as the one who is over the, over the realm of darkness, but over the power of the air. Referring to his spiritual influence in the universe. He says a spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. This power of darkness then is synonymous with the prince of the power of the air. It is synonymous with what we find in Ephesians 6 verse 12. Where the writer says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The power of darkness, in short, speaks of satanic force. He has rescued us then, he says, from the power of darkness. And in scripture, God is described as light because of his goodness, because of his purity. And darkness refers to that which is evil. The power of darkness then refers to satanic force, the one who rules in the realm of evil. And what he therefore states is that we were once under satanic influence. We, we, We were once under the rule and the reign of Satan. We were subjugated to him. We need to recognize, we, we today we, we think of sin as something that we merely commit. But the Bible sees sinners as under a malevolent and evil supernatural force who keeps sinners in bondage. What I'm trying to suggest to you that is our, our plight is worse than we perceive at first. Because to be a sinner is to be under a spiritual, supernatural force, the power of darkness, Satan himself. And one of the reasons that Satan reigns and controls sinners is not just that they are under the power of darkness, but that the unbeliever himself is darkness. See, darkness is not just referring to the force of evil reigning over sinners. We in our sins were not good people over whom Satan was ruling. We ourselves were darkness. I point you to Ephesians 5 verse 8, where the Apostle Paul, reminding the the Ephesians of their former condition, he, he, he doesn't say you once were walking in darkness. He says, but you were once darkness. But you are light in the Lord. You were once darkness. You were once characterized by darkness. The reason Satan rules us in darkness. Because he rules over a realm of darkness. But we have darkness in our own hearts. There is a symmetry between Satan's rule. And our spiritual condition. 
The reason that he's able to tyrannize us is because we ourselves are darkness. There is an agreement between the ruler of darkness and our own hearts. And therefore we need liberty. And the writer views salvation as a deliverance from a terrible enemy and a terrible state. Darkness. But salvation, according to Paul, as he calls upon believers, as he tells them his prayer that they will be giving thanks because of this salvation God has brought. He defines the salvation not only as deliverance from darkness or from the power of darkness, but he also views salvation as a transferal into the kingdom of God's beloved son. That's the next part we find in part B of verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. It's important, you know, wherever you go that you're able to take your Bible and open and follow along so that we ensure that what is preached in the pulpit is according to Scripture. Because ultimately we are not here to hear the opinion of men but the word of God. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. But he has done more. Salvation involves a deliverance from satanic influence and control. But there is in salvation a conveyance, a transferal into the kingdom of the son of his love. This is marvelous. Salvation is not merely negative, an escape from Satan and his clutches. It is a transferal into a different realm, into a different reign. And that is the same thing you see in the history of Israel. When the Lord delivered the Israelites from Egypt, he did not just take them out of Egypt and put them in a twilight zone in a no man's land. He delivered them from one state and placed them in another state, and I would say a superior state. Because he put them in a land, he placed them in a land flowing with milk and honey, a place of blessing, a place of freedom. And similarly, we, in a spiritual sense, have been delivered from the tyranny of Satan. We have been rescued from the power of darkness. And we have been transferred under the reign of Christ. He says, interestingly, that God has conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Here we have the incredible blessing of salvation. When we think of kingdom, we generally think of a demarcated geographical realm. We think of the kingdom or the United Kingdom, referring to Great Britain, or say the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And there we're talking about a geographical sphere. But when the scriptures speak of Basilia, and particularly Basilia Theu, the kingdom of God, it does not refer to a particular physical realm. Rather, it refers to a reign, a rule. And so when he says he has rescued us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son, he's saying he has conveyed us under the rule of the Son, the beloved Son of God, to be 
to be in the kingdom of the Son is to be under his reign and to be under his rule. I want to point out to you that the kingdom of the Son of his love is similar to the kingdom of God. There is no difference in scripture between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. You find that at least in the gospel accounts you will find sometimes rather we refer to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. He's referring to the same reality, the same spiritual realm of God, the same rule of God. Now he refers to the kingdom of the son of his love, the kingdom of Christ. It's therefore the same as the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. But the question is, what is this kingdom to which we have been place in which we have been brought what is it that characterizes kingdom how do we know it's different from the kingdom of darkness over which satan tyrannized us well it is a kingdom over which the lord jesus christ exercises his unique reign it's a spiritual kingdom that's the first thing we must know and it's a spiritual kingdom in which we have received spiritual blessings that those who have come under the reign of christ Christ ruling over their hearts and lives have now received incredible blessings, spiritual blessings. Let me point out what it means to be under the reign of Christ and the blessings that are involved. And remember, keep in mind, I've said that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ are one and the same. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 14 gives us an idea of what it It is to be under the reign of Christ or under the reign of God. He tells the Romans in Romans 14 verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Here Paul is discussing this whole matter of food and drink. The there was a debate in the Roman church over what was legitimate to eat. And Paul says Christ's reign, the realm over which Christ rules, is not about eating food or drinking. It is far superior to this, these questions. These issues are of no importance. No, the kingdom of God conveys great blessings. And one of the first blessings he lists here is righteousness. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness. In other words, to be under the rule and the realm of Christ, to be under Christ's sovereign spiritual reign, is to have righteousness. And you cannot read this term, righteousness. Dikaiasune. You cannot read Dikaiasune in Romans without realizing that it is often referred to as justification. What he says is that those who have come under the spiritual reign of God, those who have been regenerated and, and Christ rules over their lives, they have been given righteousness. They have been declared righteous. This is the, this is the marvel and the beauty of being a Christian because God takes a sinner who does not deserve heaven and declares that person legally just. Justification is a legal verdict made in the court of heaven. It's not something we feel. It's not something done to us in a physical sense, but rather a legal sentence about our condition. And whereas God is concerned, he says we are justified. 
We are declared righteous, not guilty, before his throne. You see, those who are under Christ have received a verdict of not guilty. You say, well, that, that, that doesn't sound right. Here's a, you know, if a guy were to go to court, he's just murdered somebody, and the judge says, oh, no, okay, go home, you're fine. Nothing wrong with that. We, w- we would be up in arms. Well, God didn't just do that. What the Lord did was something extraordinary. There was a transfer of guilt. A transfer of our guilt from ourselves unto Jesus Christ. I know that there are liberal theologians who have said that's unfair. It's unfair for God to take guilt from one person and put it on another person. And I argue that it is entirely right for God to do whatever he pleases. But more pertinent, more pertinent, it is right for God to transfer guilt to Christ because by transferring guilt to Christ, he has transferred guilt to himself. It is God in Jesus Christ who took our guilt. But you see, the blessing of being under the reign of Christ is to be declared righteous forever, legally free from condemnation in the sight of God. And Paul goes on to say the kingdom of God consists not only of righteousness but peace. And the peace, Irenae, of which the Apostle Paul speaks must not be viewed as a subjective peace, a feeling of being okay or well, but the peace that he gives is objective peace. It is not the peace of God, which is that state, that, that tranquility which he conveys to us, especially in times of difficulties, but it is peace with God. It is this reconciliation. And so what he says here, the kingdom of God consists of righteousness and peace. Reconciliation. All of those people who are under Christ's rule are reconciled to God. They're no longer enemies. They're no longer divided and estranged. They're brought into peace with him. But his kingdom consists of joy. Joy in in the Holy Spirit. A joy produced by the Spirit. A joy that exists even in the face of great hardship. A supernatural joy. It consists of the Holy Spirit. But you may say, well, what is this to be under the Christ's reign? What, what does it give us? Well, it gives us righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But it gives us power. It gives us power. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 20, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. You see, all those who belong to the kingdom, all those who are under the reign of Christ have received righteousness, peace, joy, the Holy Spirit, and have received power from God. Power to live. Power to serve. But is that all that is involved in the kingdom, in the reign of Christ? I would say to you, no. There is a reason. There is a a reason why the writer describes the kingdom of God as the kingdom of the son of his love. It's not put there because he's being wordy or pedantic. He calls the kingdom, the kingdom of the son of his love. Or we would say for short, the kingdom of his beloved son. You see, those who are saved 
have been delivered, rescued from Satan's reign. They have been put under the reign of Christ. And his reign is one which brings righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit and power. But his reign brings love. You see, he is the son of his love. We see at the baptism of the Lord Jesus, Jesus, Jesus was described by the Father. This is my beloved son. He is, in fact, the fulfillment of Israel, who was the disobedient son. But Christ now is the son of God, and he is the beloved son. The kingdom, the reign under which we now live as believers, is that of Christ who is loved by the Father and who himself loves the Father. The kingdom under which we have been brought is one characterized by intra-Trinitarian love, a love of the Father for the Son and for the Holy Spirit. And the kingdom where we ourselves now receive the love of God. Paul says the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We have been brought into a kingdom not only of righteousness and of power and of peace, but a kingdom of love. Where we have experienced beyond human conception something of the divine love. This amazing love that gave Jesus Christ for our sins. Is the kingdom of his love. What does it mean to be saved? It is to be under Christ. Who is loved by the father. And under Christ who loves us. You may search the world. And you will find prophets who are brilliant. But you can never find anywhere else a loving Savior. We have been rescued from the hatred and the tyranny of Satan. And we have been brought into the kingdom of the son of his love. The one whom the father loves. And the one who loves us with incredible love. If you are a Christian, what God has done, he has thrown open the door of heaven. And unbosomed himself. And poured out his love upon you. Whatever you may perceive yourself to be, if you are a Christian, you have God's incredible and infinite love. A love that will never let you go. And this kingdom, this reign of Christ, characterized by these things, is a present reality. Notice the writer says, in whom... Or he says, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. This kingdom is a present kingdom. We are under Christ's present reign. Throughout the Gospels, the Lord Jesus Christ says, the kingdom of God is amongst you. The kingdom has arrived, is at hand. And when, often when the New Testament says the kingdom of God is at hand, it doesn't mean it's near to appear. It means it's right there, right beside you. Because the kingdom of God arrived in the person of Christ. God's reign invaded this universe. His spiritual reign invaded the universe when Christ came. 
He established his kingdom in the presence and in the person of Christ. And that reign, therefore, is a present reign. It means that we who are children of God are presently citizens of his kingdom. We are citizens of heaven because his reign is a present reign. But let's be clear that this reign, this reign of Christ, is also an eschatological reign. A reign that is not yet completed. We've been brought under the reign of Christ. But we have not yet experienced all that there is to this reign. We see dimly through a glass, but then face to face. Eyes have not seen, not ears have not heard the things that God has prepared for those who love him. We've only seen a glimmer of what awaits us. You see, Paul talks about this eschatological future aspect of the kingdom or the reign of Christ when he says, And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. We are under God's reign and under Christ's reign, but we haven't yet arrived in heaven. If this is your heaven, then I am rather very sorry for you. And Paul says, then comes the end. Romans 15, 24 to 28. When he, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, he must reign till he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who puts all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who puts all things under him, that God may be all in all, everything to everyone. So salvation is rescue from the power of darkness. Salvation, according to Paul, for which we should be giving thanks, is transferal. But thirdly, the Apostle Paul in verse 14 perceives salvation as redemption and forgiveness of sins. You see, not only in salvation does God rescue us from cosmic powers, and transfers us to this marvelous kingdom of the Son of His love. But in salvation, we have received redemption and forgiveness. He says, in whom we have redemption, having called Christ the, the Son of the Father's love. He says, in whom, referring to Christ, in whom we have redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of sins. The writer makes it clear that salvation thus involves redemption, apolutrosis. There is a close similarity between rescue and redemption. In fact, if you were to look at the lexicons that define these two terms, you will see that, the, that these two terms share the same semantic range. Ruamai and apolutrosis means to rescue, to deliver, to release. But even though they are close, there is a shade of distinction that must be maintained. When Ruamai, rescue is used, generally it's a general term for deliverance. But it says nothing about how deliverance occurs. Whereas, lutrosis, or apolutrosis, well, our Lord could talk about lutron and that aspect of ransom, these words are 
of course, derivatives. But when the New Testament talks about apolutrosis, it does mean rescue. But, but apolutrosis goes a step further because it means rescue by the payment of a price. Ruamai means to rescue, but apolutrosis means deliverance by paying a ransom. It's a term that occurs in the Old Testament for the releasing of relatives from indentured labor, the buying back of slaves. It's a commercial term for the slave market where one buys back somebody who has been sold into slavery. And now the writer says, in Christ, in whom we have redemption, a deliverance, but a deliverance by the paying of a price. And the text shows us that redemption is by a particular costly price, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Through his blood. It's a graphic language. It means that our redemption is through Christ's death. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 9 verse 12 says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Peter, in similar language in 1 Peter 18 verse 19, says, For as much as you know you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver or gold from your vain conversation, Received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. We have been redeemed. We have been rescued. But we have been rescued by Christ's death on the cross. He became, he who knew no sin, became sin for us. He was made a curse for us. Now this redemption, the writer describes redemption as synonymous with forgiveness. And this is marvelous. In him in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So, so, so in case we do not understand what redemption means in this context, he adds the forgiveness of sins. What he's saying then is this. Not only did God rescue us from an alien, wicked power that is Satan, but God redeemed us And this deliverance is a deliverance from sin because it brings forgiveness of sins. You see, he he uses forgiveness. You see, the term, afimi, to forgive means to let go, to release. You know, when, when you forgive somebody, you release them. You know, so if, if somebody borrows some money from you and decide that they're going to hide from you, every time they see your number, they pretend they're not at home. And when they see you, they dodge. You know, you may be walking down Young Street and they will look at you, they dodge into a store just because they want to get away from you. They don't want to pay you back. And you're gracious enough, you say, I forgive you. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean you don't feel bad or angry towards them? No. It has nothing to do with your feeling. What you mean there is that you, you have released them from the obligation of paying back. It means to let them go free. You're not going to demand payment. And what God has done when he delivers us, when he redeemed us, when he liberated us, he liberated us from the price or the payment of sin. He no longer demands from us the payment for our sins. 
He has released us, delivered us. You notice how the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 verse 7 connects links both redemption and forgiveness. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. By the way, Colossians and Hebrew are actually very close in terms of the themes that they cover. In who in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace in Ephesians 1 7. The great deliverance then in verse 14 that we have received is deliverance from sin. We have been forgiven the great promise of the new covenant by Jeremiah. And all of this, this release, this redemption, this deliverance, this forgiveness of sins is by Christ's death on the cross. So then what is salvation? Salvation is a new exodus. It is to be rescued from the power of darkness from Satan himself. It is to be secondly transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. And thirdly, it is to be redeemed. That is to be forgiven all our sins. You and I who are Christians have been given the greatest of gifts, salvation. And this is God's initiative. One of the reasons that I believe Horatius Bonar, the Scottish preacher and hymn writer, was one of the greatest theologians. It is because in his hymns he sought to give glory to God. And salvation is not our work. It is the work of God entirely. Horatius Bonar says, not what my hands have done, can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I do or feel can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Nothing that we do. We are saved by grace. We are saved by grace alone. We're saved by the amazing goodness of God. It is he who rescued us. It is he who redeemed us. It is he who gave Christ for us. And the duty and the task of the the believer is to daily praise God. You may not have the wealth that you think you deserve to have in life. You may not have tons of friends at your side, but you have salvation. Whereas God has passed by millions and left them in their sins. He has singled you out. He has called you by name. He has imparted to you the Holy Spirit because you are his. It is an act of grace. The difference between you and anyone else is grace. We did not save ourselves. We did not want to be saved. In fact, we didn't even know we were lost. It is God who went searching for us. It is he who provided a redeemer. It is he who saves and it is he who keeps. You see, those whom he loves, once he loves forever. We must praise God for his initiative in salvation. We must always remember, secondly, that we were saved at a high price. Our Lord delivered us from Satan. 
but he delivered us by Christ's work on the cross. We were under the power and the tyranny of, a, of, of, of an enemy too great for us. He had our hearts on his side because he was the king of darkness and we were children of darkness. But God delivered us through Christ. We see the Lord Jesus in his miracles beginning to attack the power of darkness. And on the cross he overcame hostile forces. Colossians 2 made this clear in verse 15. He placed all things under his feet. He ransacked Satan's house. He entered into the strong man's house, into the house of darkness, and he brought us out with a mighty hand. Jesus has won and led a new exodus. Very interesting in the Mount of Transfiguration, when the Lord Jesus had his three closest disciples with him. We are told that Moses and Elijah appeared on the mountain and they were talking to him about his exodus. Because Christ came to lead an exodus out of darkness. And he stepped into the lair of Satan. He stepped into the haunt of Satan. He stepped into the house of Satan and he broke the shackles that he had on you and he brought you out. You see, you and I have been delivered from the power of darkness by Christ. But he's delivered us not only from Satan. He's delivered us from our sins. It's a language that we don't hear today. Sin has, of course, been redefined. It's, it's like eating ice cream. Your favorite ice cream. Oh, that's sinful. Sinfully delicious. <laughs> but that's one of the most dangerous words you can use. Because that word is tied inextricably to hell. Sin leads ultimately to hell. We were sinners. It is Solomon in his prayer who says, There is not a just man on the earth who does good and does not sin. We're all sinners. Paul says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I want you to understand there in Romans 3.23, when he says, All have sinned, past tense, fallen short, you may think is the past tense, but it is not the past tense. It's the present tense. All have sinned and are falling short of God's glory. We haven't yet come to God's glory. We haven't lived for his glory. You see, we were sinners. We needed deliverance from Satan, but we needed deliverance from sin. The apostle Paul could cry out in anguish, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But he did not despair. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. What is he saying? I am a sinner, weighed down with sin, but there is deliverance, and that deliverance is in Christ. Christ is the deliverer who has come out of Zion to turn ungodliness away from Jacob. 
It is Christ the Deliverer who has come, who has died for our sins and delivered us from condemnation. You and I need to know, dear friends, that we are to praise the Lord Jesus Christ and to love him because he has delivered us from Satan and delivered us from our sins. But you must recognize that when he delivered you from Satan and when he delivered you from sin, he placed you under his reign. And that means many things. The import of this are several. One of the things then that you and I must consider is that under the reign of Christ, you do not need to fear any other power. The, the Colossians were very concerned about evil forces. They were always concerned that there was some evil power out there that would get them. So Paul says, when God saved you, he delivered you from the power of darkness and he placed you under new management. You're under the reign of Christ. You're under the reign of the messianic king, Jesus Christ, who is king of kings and lord of lords. You do not need to worry or to fear any other power when you're under Christ's reign. Because all powers are subject to him. All powers are under his feet. It also means that under the reign of Christ, you are not your own. You do not belong to yourself. When he bought you, when he paid for your sins, he bought you for himself. And you and I must, must no longer live like those who are under the reign of Satan. We must live in joy and in love as those who have been bought at a price and are under Christ's loving reign. And this demands of us appropriate service. Because we have been bought by Christ and we are under his reign. We must live for King Jesus. The choices and the decisions that we make must be governed and directed for Christ's sake because we are under his reign. We are in his kingdom. We have received his blessing and we are going to enter into his heavenly kingdom. We are to live for him. We are to seek his glory. We are not to seek to please ourselves or to follow the world. We are under Christ. Christ has bought us for himself. I want you to know that if you are a Christian, you are not your own. You are not under your own rule. It's not your way or the highway. It's Christ's way. It's a good thing that Christ has delivered us from our own self-rule. Because when we ruled ourselves, we made a mess of it. And we keep on making a mess of it. But under the reign of Christ, we are set in a way that is straight and righteous and good. To really have a, a true, integrated, holistic way of living is to be under Christ. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. What the Father has done for you is to deliver you from Satan and given you to the Son that he loves. You're under the love of Christ and the love of the Father. And the love of Christ will see you through. The love of God will never abandon you. There is no darkness, no hole in which you fall where you will not feel yourself surrounded by God's everlasting love. You're in a kingdom of righteousness and of power and of peace and of joy. 
but a kingdom of love. May God so help you that you live as those who are beloved by God, experiencing his love and loving him him in return. For Jesus' sake, amen.